this week, will coffee survive climate change? I know. But first, I'm Quinn Emmett, and this is important, not important, science for people who give a shit, who give a shit about coffee. Hit subscribe right now to get this newsletter and my conversations with the world's smartest people every single week. You can find the email or web version and links to everything at importantnotimportant.com or right in your show notes. And now let's get today's big, big question. Caffeine. Can't sleep with it. Can't operate as a human being in the year of our Lord 2023 without it. Caffeine comes in a wide variety of sources, including tea, obviously, soda, and other terrifying processed drinks like Celsius. But today, let's focus on what Jack Aubrey's friend, Alexander von Humboldt, called concentrated sunshine. Coffee. Two billion cups of coffee are consumed every day. An estimated 154 million adults, 75% of the U.S. population, report drinking coffee, and half of adults drink it every damn day. Because of exactly how it works in our brains and how prevalent it is through society, coffee effectively rewrote humanity's baseline consciousness. We've got don't talk to mom before her coffee trinkets, which made Etsy what it is today. Coffee fueled the Industrial Revolution. It gave us confidence and seemingly energy, but we'll come back to that all conveniently harvested and laboriously produced on the backs of millions of slaves on the other side of the world. The slavery is a little less now, and historically a blip compared to sugar plantations, mostly for tea, but the brutal conditions remain, and it's getting hotter every day for the plants and the workers. So can coffee, the world's second most consumed beverage after water, the other liquid we can't operate without, survive climate change? From what we can tell, which isn't much, the Chinese have been drinking tea for a very long time, maybe since the 200s AD. Coffee seems to have gotten its start about a thousand years or so later in East Africa and across the Silk Road and Red Sea to the Arabian Peninsula. It's probably not coincidental that Muslim scholars relied on coffee to, you know, invent math and chemistry. I'm not kidding here. The word algebra is derived from the medieval Latin and from the Arabic Al-Jabbar, which I'm probably mispronouncing. Anyways, it seems to translate to reunion of broken parts, which is also not coincidentally what happens to my wife every morning when I pry open her eyes and deliver her a hot coffee with an extra shot of espresso tucked right inside. Alcohol, as those Muslim scholars could tell you, is a nightmare, on the other hand. More on that later. Anyways, caffeine paralleled colonialism. The English stole the recipe for tea from the Chinese, and coffee eventually made its way to Venice and London, to coffee houses, fueling conversation and the Enlightenment, checking the power of the monarchy, and playing no small part in the Industrial Revolution. Look, we didn't just make a whole bunch more shit in the Industrial Revolution. We made a ton of it at night for the first time. Sure, gas lights helped, but the night shift doesn't exist without coffee, because it enabled us to reverse our circadian rhythms and eventually guarantee free two-day shipping with Prime. Caffeine is a drug. It's a drug virtually every one of us uses every single day. It improves mental performance. It improves athletic performance. It improves memory and gives us confidence where just moments ago there was none. As long as you don't drink 10 to 100 cups a day, coffee seems to reduce the risk of a few cancers, diabetes, dementia, and, vitally important for Americans in particular, cardiovascular disease. Coffee doesn't actually give us energy. 
which is something I didn't understand until basically last week. It specifically blocks adenosine, the neuromodulating molecule that accumulates in your brain during the day, naturally topping up before bedtime. But caffeine blocks it from being fully transmitted, so you never get the signal, and thus you don't think you're tired, and voila, you can continue being employed. The problem is eventually your caffeine is metabolized, all the accumulated adenosine breaks through, and we crash super hard immediately going into withdrawal. Unless we have another cup of coffee. Most of us are addicted to coffee, and most of us are fine with it. We are fine with it as long as we have steady access to it, another cup, to prevent spending too long in withdrawal. Coffee is so much of our collective baseline that most of us forget it creates an altered state. It is so much a part of us that any of us can spot a fellow addict in what is hopefully, for their sake, for everyone's sake, temporary withdrawal. It's so much more common than you think. Look for the longest line at the airport, a queue of disgruntled would-be travelers risking hundreds of dollars in their flight to wait in a 45-minute line for their ritual $7 three-pump milkshake with a little coffee thrown in. The only known cure for the same headache they had yesterday at the exact same time. We want to do a lot of stuff. We're not in great shape. We didn't get a good night's sleep. We're a little depressed. Coffee solves all these problems in one delightful little cup. That's what Jerry Seinfeld said. Coffee creates the exact conditions it alone solves. You, because of course I'm describing you too, as something like 90% of humans, including kids, because we're terrible, consume some sort of caffeine. You are no longer getting ahead by drinking coffee every day. You are simply keeping from falling behind. You drink your coffee in the morning, and then probably again too late in the day, sleep poorly and tempt depression because of the ridiculous half-life of coffee, go into withdrawal from the lack of coffee, and then yell at your kids to pack their own lunches until you've had enough to keep the adenosine at bay. It's like steroids in sports. Where early adopters used steroids to get ahead, eventually everyone did them so that they didn't fall behind. That's your brain and your body on coffee, constantly trying to stay out of caffeine withdrawal, an actual diagnosis in the Diagnostic and Statistical Manual of Mental Disorders, or DSM-5. It's a vicious, beneficial circle we are entirely, willingly dependent on. If you thought the Fremen of Arrakis had an addiction problem, you should probably have a long, hard look at the person in the mirror. But, 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 you say. The Fremen function at such a high level because of the spice. Spice enables a superhuman level of fighting ability, of focus. It permits interstellar travel and is the bedrock and downfall of empires. Yeah, we too send coffee to outer space where every ounce of payload of anything costs a gazillion dollars, but spacewalks require obscene focus for hours on end. We also send it to the bottom of the ocean with submariners who drink it by the fucking gallon as they work never-ending eight-hour shifts next to a balmy nuclear reactor and don't see the sun for months at a time, which is a horrific biological experiment on its own. It is a physiological requirement and a perk of even the least woke employers because it makes better workers. And once having had coffee, we are terrible workers, usually complete pricks really, without it. Thus, the kitchenette. So there is no going back. 
unless you really try to get off of it entirely, something experts like Michael Pollan simultaneously recommend and do not recommend at all. We are better workers with this entirely legal psychoactive drug because it enhances something called our spotlight consciousness, or more practically, your ability to finally crank out those marketing briefs, legal memos, or overdue TPS reports, the same TPS reports that form the backbone of capitalism. The same capitalism, by the way, which evolved from basic silver and gold mercantilism to urbanized mass production of tanks and fucking widget spinners and squishmallows, free trade that stockpiled vast capital and, for a time, encouraged union power, wage labor, and weekends, all by way of the Industrial Revolution. But of course, I'm being slightly disingenuous here, coffee itself doesn't fuel the Industrial Revolution. Coffee itself didn't fuel the Industrial Revolution. The slaves in Brazil and Central America that planted and harvested it did. But like the Industrial Revolution, there's some obvious pros and cons with coffee. Are we more productive workers than we otherwise would be? Basically. Did the Industrial Revolution lift a whole lot of folks out of poverty? Yep. Are those benefits equally distributed? No, they are not. As we talked about recently, coffee has both co-benefits and exists as a threat multiplier, the costs of which we've, per usual, declined to calculate, much less pay. Like our dwindling freshwater, or, again, alcohol, or air pollution, coffee is a problem because of the aggregate personal footprints driving systemic ones, carrying massive societal, cultural, and economic impacts, all of which could be radically impacted by climate change, which was instigated by, and you guessed it, the Industrial Revolution. Look, you don't get to pump a bazillion tons of pollution into the air for a couple hundred years and not pay some sort of price. It turns out, of course, we've been inadvertently paying the price in a bunch of ways this entire time. The ocean's hotter than ever, air pollution kills 8 million people a year. You get the point. Hey, everyone, it's Quinn, your host and the founder of Important not important. I'd like to take a quick minute to tell you about the INI or any, whatever we're calling it these days, membership and community. It's a gathering place really for our most dedicated shit givers, a place to connect and learn from one another and to have access to me outside of the newsletter and this podcast. We started it last year and it's grown to hundreds of shit givers from all kinds from around the globe. I'm talking about teachers and investors Students, electricians, journalists, artists, scientists, and policymakers, and, and more. Members get exclusive access to our daily news homepage, which is very cool, and to much more top-of-mind weekly articles, research, and tools that you can use and to stay ahead of the game. Member-sourced action steps, twice-monthly book and culture recommendations that have nothing to do with the end of the world, virtual events, and of course, the membership Slack channel. Look, so many people come to us asking, what can I do? And we think we do a pretty good job of answering that question and providing context for the answer. But the best answers and the best perspective really come from the community, a wide-ranging community. And we would love for you to be a part of it, to feel supported yourself, and to contribute to discussions and actions alike. And of course, by becoming a member, you're directly supporting our work here and ensuring that we get to keep doing it. So if you'd like to learn more, head to importantnotimportant.com. And if you're already a reader, you can just hit the upgrade button at the top. If you're not, 
go ahead and subscribe for free and you'll see the option to become a member at whatever level works best for you. And as always, you can always find the link to become a member right in your show notes. So thanks for listening. And as always, thanks for giving a shit. Back to the show. One fun expense item is global heating, which drives an increasing number of droughts around the world and which threatens a number of crops bred to thrive in more temperate conditions. But coffee is even more of a pain in the ass than, say, rice or peaches, which are in real trouble. The 11 million hectares of Arabica and Robusta and 122 other species harvested every year across the Americas, Asia, and almost 70 other countries implies a robust and varied supply chain. It seems as if coffee is ubiquitous, a strategic commodity we cannot do without. But in fact, coffee plants require very specific altitudes, soil, temperature, and water. Now, if you're thinking, wait, aren't soil, temperature, and water in deep shit because of climate change? You would be correct. Which is why some probably coffee-dependent climate scientists reluctantly suggest that 50% of the aforementioned coffee regions won't be able to actually grow the plant in a couple decades. 50%. Half. Among the world's 124 coffee species, a team of scientists have concluded that 60% are at risk of extinction in the wild. Not to say nothing of how expensive coffee would get, and further, how productivity itself may stall out as billions can't afford or even access their daily coffee at all. Look, I didn't spend a thousand words before this explaining on how being on coffee is now our default productive state for nothing. Now we're here. The point is the people and infrastructure required to produce as much coffee as we do are in deep shit, too. Drought doesn't just affect the plant, the coffee. It directly affects soil health and other surrounding biodiversity. They're called ecosystems for a reason. And of course, the people who have traditionally relied on them to feed their families directly or indirectly from the profits of their work. And so millions of people, mostly across the global south, are already on the move, migrating north from everywhere, because you can't farm shit out of parched land. Wide-reaching increases in poverty levels across coffee growers are already a thing. As labor leaves for literally any green pastures at all, planting, harvesting, production, and shipping capabilities dwindle, too, reducing and eventually eliminating entire markets. And I gotta tell you, you only have to play tradle so many times to understand how important coffee exports are to a huge variety of countries. This is the part where I want to emphasize again, like I did through the first half of this thing, that Earth's second most popular drink, a necessity to individuals like you and me and economies the world over, no exaggeration, is already under threat from climate change. Climate, like COVID and AI, is a test for all of our choices up to now, from how we price water, how we run our governments, to how we power our automobiles and homes, to how we or we don't insure homes and businesses. There are myriad, almost innumerable weak links in the chain, a vast, impossible to fully envision network of interconnected systems. So with everything else going on, it can seem relatively silly to sweat where your next pumpkin spice K-cup or iced brown sugar oat milk shaken espresso comes from. But again, I think I've made it clear. This is not a silly concern at all. 
I'm not fucking around here. I didn't ask myself, should I write about boba tea or should I write about coffee this week? It is an absolutely essential commodity, and we have fucked around and now are finding out. Arabica and Robusta are so damn picky that relocating them to more suitable climates or tinkering with farming practices isn't going to save anything. Enter Liberica Excelsa. Farmers in one of Africa's biggest coffee-exporting countries are growing a whole other variety that better withstands the heat, drought, and disease supersized by global warming. Even if there's too much heat, it does fine, says Galuba John, a coffee farmer near the town of Zarabwe in central Uganda. It's from the New York Times. If Arabica and Robusta are fussy, Liberica is not. Indigenous to West and Central Africa, it was popular in the 1800s. Robust, high-yielding with huge fruits, seeds, and trees that live a long, long time. Fairly pest and disease-resistant, and growing fruitfully in warmer, lower elevations. Huzzah! In the 1870s in Southeast Asia, Liberica was the only option as coffee rust annihilated Arabica across the country. So what happened? Why isn't it everywhere today? Well, Brazilian Arabica absolutely exploded so that, but also, Liberica excelsa tastes not great compared to Arabica. Robusta also doesn't taste ideal, which is why it's usually blended with Arabica. Or it didn't taste great. Apparently, it tasted less delicious then because of a particular post-harvesting techniques. That's the pulping, the washing, the fermenting, and the drying. Among the relatively huge fruits, which, great news, we can do those things differently today. And we are as coffee scientists have encouraged farmers to improve their harvesting and drying of their Liberica crop, making for far better flavor. One quote says, Contemporary assessments for Liberica indicate high levels of natural sweetness, a positive attribute for coffee quality, a rich, bold mouthfeel, low acidity, and flavor notes of chocolate, jackfruit, and other tropical and non-tropical fruits. So yeah, the caffeine content more or less matches Arabica, even if that's still way less than Robusta. But the market for Liberica is growing. You can find it online, in some independent shops, but it's a two-sided market. So even with climate change, farmers can't commit to turning over their entire crop unless the demand is there. And the demand won't be there unless we talk about how coffee itself is at risk, unless we talk about climate change, unless we ask our independent shops to order it. It's how we guarantee that they can continue doing what they do powering civilization, and hopefully making a living wage along the way. Coffee is not dependent on Liberica. Nearly every underutilized species is being tested for commercial viability. But with the overall market growing like crazy, since 1990, the total production of major coffee-exporting countries has risen from 5,593,800 metric tons to 9,903,180 metric tons in 2020. The biggest players have to get more involved. Starbucks, buyer of 3% of the world's coffee and certified union busters, is co-developing more resilient species of Arabica. And like anything else at risk because of climate change, we have to go further. We have to protect the soil. We have to protect Uganda's low elevation forests where Excelsa grows. Yields don't mature until five or six years after planting. So we have to take kitchen sink level action now. And of course, we have to stop new emissions everywhere as fast as we possibly can. Like everything else, we can have gratitude for what coffee has done for us and for the people who provided it, and an indebtedness to build a better, more resilient system in a warming world. Now, before we get to your action steps, here are some fun quotes about caffeine and coffee. Uh, first one, 
coffee seemed to be tailor-made for a culture that forbade alcohol consumption and gave birth to modern mathematics. That's from Wolfgang Schivelbusch uh, describing the Muslim mathematicians. Number two, should I kill myself or have a cup of coffee? From Albert Camus. Number three, I'd rather take coffee than compliments just now. From Little Woman. And from Johann Sebastian Bach, if I couldn't three times a day be allowed to drink my little cup of coffee, in my anguish, I will turn into a shriveled up roast goat. Here's your relevant action steps. Number one, donate to support African farmers by increasing incomes and improving food security through the Alliance for a Green Africa. Number two, volunteer to join the Coffee and Climate Network, an organization that connects stakeholders in coffee farming to create a climate-smart future. Number three, get educated about what is in your supplements using Examine's independent evidence-based database. Number four, be heard about your eco-anxiety by connecting with others having similar feelings at a climate cafe near you. And lastly, invest in deforestation-free investment options with deforestation-free funds. That's it for this week. If you've got feedback, questions, anything, please email them to us at questions at importantnotimportant.com. That's it. Please subscribe to get the next week's issue straight to your feed and all the rest of our conversations. To go deeper, visit importantnotimportant.com. That's it. Have a great weekend, and thanks for giving a shit.